Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today I'm delighted to welcome two faculty members from the medical school at Israel's second largest academic institution, Bar Ilan University. Dr. Peter Gilby is an otolaryngologist and chair of the Department of Research and Innovation in Medical Education, and Dr. Yair Bloomberg is a clinical exercise physiologist and cardiology and physiology coordinator at the school. I had the privilege to meet up with Yair when I was in Jerusalem uh, earlier this summer and was really impressed with everything I learned from him uh, about Bar-Ilan, as well as the medical education system in Israel as a whole. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning more from both Peter and Yair about the school, its approach to training the next generation of healthcare professionals. Uh, so Peter and Yair, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. You're very welcome. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, let's start with just kind of what we normally do is ask our guests to give us, in their own words, their backgrounds, what got them interested in medicine, then medical education and leadership. Um, and so maybe, Peter, can we start start with you giving us some career highlights and then go over to you, Yair? Yeah, well, I've been a physician for many years, and my interest in medical education is uh, about a dec- decade old, I, I, I think. Uh, with the formation of this medical school, I... Um, uh, found myself more and more involved and interested in medical education. I had the opportunity to spend uh, six months uh, at uh, at the Stanford Medical uh, uh, Stanford Medical School. Uh, that was almost ten years ago, and I then uh, did a master's degree in medical education uh, at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And I think it's fair to say that currently medical education is 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 my main my main interest and my main my my, my main challenge. That's great. And actually, uh, on that note, when you were at Dundee, did you uh, overlap at all with Ron Harden? You know that I think that's where he's based in Dundee. Well, I've been I've been taught by I've been taught by him, and we actually saw him recently at the Amy conference. Uh, the Amy conference uh, we we've just attended in uh, in Europe, and uh, yeah, I understand he's retiring or at least stepping down as 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 chairman of of, of Amy. So it's a uh, a new period, but but he's uh, untiring, you know. He's the uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned him. We had him on the podcast before Amy to talk about Amy, and obviously we had teammates there. I mentioned to him um, what Catherine D'Angelis, who is a, a professor at Johns Hopkins, professor emeritus, told me uh, when we were just starting osmosis. I went to her for some advice, and I asked her, you know, when are you going to retire? Are you retired? And she said, uh, Shiv, honey, uh, I never tired the first time. How can I retire? Um, and she, she's known as the, the first female editor in chief of JAMA. So people like her, Ron Harden, obviously very impressive. Um, so yeah, let's go, let's go to you. I, I already know you quite well, having met up with you in Jerusalem, uh, at that fun place, but, um, for our, for our audience's sake, your background, what got you interested in medical education? So, I'm uh, I'm not a physician. I'm a PhD in exercise physiology and physiology. I did my PhD um, at Bar Ilan, the this faculty, the Israeli Faculty of Medicine. I was one of the first PhDs who finished the the program, and I got during my PhD. I was uh, caught into education and teaching. Started with anatomy and then moved to general physiology and, uh, and cardiac physiology. And eventually, I, I ended up staying and developing with Peter 
a uh, few new models of, of, of teaching and, edu and medical education. So this is how I got through Peter. I got to, to, to medical education. That's great. Um, that's wonderful. So let's, let's actually dive in then about, um, kind of going into the specifics. First, let's talk about the school, uh, Barilan and Israeli faculty of medicine, and then maybe zoom out and talk about the Israeli medical education system as a whole. Um, so maybe Peter, back to you. Can you talk to us a bit about the school, uh, it's founding and, and, you know, how many students you train and those kind of, uh, metrics? So, uh, yeah, sure. We are the, um, <clears throat> the fifth Israeli medical school to be established. Uh, there are now six. Um, that's for a population which I think is now around 9 million people. And our faculty was established in 2011. So that's about 11 years ago. And traditionally, medical education in Israel has been a six-year study program. Uh, so it, it hasn't been an American model graduate entry uh, system, but a six-year program, uh, similar to the to the European or the British uh, system especially. But we opened with a four-year program, a four-year graduate entry program, and there are currently, I believe, three four-year programs in Israel. And we've actually just applied to the Council of Higher Education, which is the professional body of the Ministry of Education. We've just applied for a six-year program, which is something we want to expand into. And Yair and I are both working together uh, on that. So in Israel, either a six-year program or a four-year graduate entry program, uh, we're aiming to have both. Um, and we currently have about, well, this year we have about 150 uh, students per year. And we are, of course, hoping to expand that. Uh, indeed, the whole, <clears throat> the whole country is hoping to expand that because we have a problem here in Israel that uh, we have very many foreign med medical graduates. Um, I think something like 60% of our physicians are, are trained elsewhere. And this is a number we're aiming to bring down. In general, we have a physician shortage, as, as in many other places in the world. Uh, but we also have a shortage of uh, high-quality, homegrown Israeli physicians, uh, which we'd like, we'd like more of. So we are participating in that national effort. So that's us, more or less. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, maybe, um, uh, yeah, do you want to add anything to that overall picture before we go into kind of what specific innovations uh, you both have implemented for your curriculum? Um, so anything you want to comment on that year before we hand it off to you to talk about innovations? Not much. Uh, only the thing is, there is a bit of a story, like not enough physician, especially in our district in Israel, which is also is unique in, 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 in the faculty and the, what the faculty are doing. Is yeah, yeah. I could just say I'll say one more small word about that. We are in. Uh, this may sound funny to to an American uh, or to a Canadian, you know, but we are a peripheral medical school, meaning that we are, you know, two or two and a half hours drive away from the center of the country, which in other places would be considered, you know, completely central. But we are. Uh, in the periphery of the country, we have a hard time uh, attracting students uh, to the Galilee, to the area we're in. 
Uh, and this is an area which has significant health disparities, which is part of our school's mission. We have significantly less physicians and nurses per capita uh, in the north and in the far south of Israel when compared to the uh, center of Israel. If in Tel Aviv, where I, I imagine you've been, uh, you can find five point something physicians per 1,000 population, we're hovering around the 2.1% uh, 2.1 physicians per 1000 population so it's significantly less and the health outcomes in the north are also less than they are in the center of the country so that's one of our uh, main missions which we're not yet successful enough in 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 doing that's fascinating and actually it's it's really interesting to to think that even though Israel is a much smaller country than the U.S., some of these issues are still popping up where there's disparities in health care and health outcomes just based on the zip code or the area you're, you're born in. We've had several guests on our podcast, including uh, my friend Ted Wendell, who runs um, uh, A.T. Still University. And one of their main missions is improving the number of physicians who, who train and then stay in more rural areas, which, you know, clearly you both, I'm sure, spend time in the U.S. at Stanford and other places you know, it takes two hours to get in traffic from Stanford to San Francisco. And so, um, you know, but but it's not about the length of time. It's about, you know, how many people are living there and decide to raise families there, et cetera. So um, going into that, I mean, actually, that could be a good segue because, you know, because of these disparities, there's a lot of changes in the curriculums in the U.S. focused on social determinants of health, diversity, equity, inclusion, telehealth, which hopefully because of COVID and whatnot can be a potential solution for some of this access to healthcare, at least part-time types of healthcare. So what are some innovations uh, you all have been focused on uh, at Bar Ilan? Uh, I know both you have spearheaded many of them uh, and changes to the curriculum. And maybe we can start with you, Yair, talk, talking about that and then hand it off to Peter. Um, so we try, we led by Peter, we're trying to, to, to develop a new approaches of, of education. Um, the last few years, we started um, a bit of flip class, which we're using osmosis for. Um, we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of studies on on point of care ultrasound, trying to implant it in a very early uh, stage at medical education, medical uh, and and medical career and medical uh, medical uh, studies, and and we're trying to develop you know more of of, of internet based learning and self uh, self learning and and coming to to the university and using the basis that that people have been taught alone and try to to practice it in the university itself i just wanted to get back to to the question of of social accountability and social determinants of health um and as i said we haven't been successful enough in retaining our graduates in, in in our rural area and many other places have had the same challenges um in canada in australia in japan in norway there, there's a great deal of international experience on this um and it seems today that the best way to retain physicians in uh, a peripheral social or economic peri- or geographic peripheral a periphery of, of any country is to recruit these people from that area. That seems to work much better than giving any kinds of, uh, you know, monetary incentives. So if you take the best local people and you train them, they will stay uh, in the area. This has been proved 
uh, time and time again. So we're trying to uh, move in that direction. You know, the, the, the solution starts in the admissions process. Um, and then you have issues of uh, uh, equal opportunity, uh, and is this discriminatory against uh, people coming from the uh, center of the country because there are obviously uh, uh, much fewer spaces in medical school than, than there are people wanting to enter medical school? So these are complex issues that we are that we are dealing in. So get the rural people to keep the rural physicians in the in the rural area. That's that's number one. And the other thing is to involve them in the community from a very early stage. You know, our first preclinical course is, is a public health course, exactly for that reason, because we want to be accountable to the community that we operate in. Um, so we get the students into the community, into health organizations in the community. We have a very unique uh, program within public health called uh, ITGAL, which basically involves students in the transition from hospital care to community care. So actually we get students to accompany uh, uh, patients, especially patients with low health literacy, in the transition from hospital to community and actually to translate their discharge letter, which is sometimes unintelligible to, to 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 people you know it's written by a doctor for a doctor and people don't really understand what it's all about and they're not compliant with their medications or they don't understand what's required of them so we're getting students involved in in that interface uh and this gets them heavily involved in the community uh hopefully uh, to build a, a, a true commitment to the to the community, and we have a unique community. We have, uh, you know, we have all kinds of people. We have, you know, from we have a very large Arab-speaking uh, population. We have an ultra-religious uh, Jewish population, uh, a rural population, uh, urban population. We have we have all kinds. So that's what we that's what we're trying to do. I love that. Those themes are are really important and. Uh certainly um, are aligned with, I think, what we're seeing in the macro healthcare environment where there we have to do a better job of providing healthcare, as you said, in the community or even at home um, and then also involving patients, you know, through concepts like shared decision-making. So the, the whole literacy aspect is something we believe very strongly in. A lot of what we do at Osmosis clearly focuses on health literacy and getting patients to understand why they need to take their entire antibiotic regimen or, you know, how to do peritoneal at-home dialysis is another example of content we've made. So it's great to hear those are two of the focus areas. While we're while we're on some of those areas, do you do anything around interprofessional education? You know, how care coordination between your, the physicians you're training, uh, the nurses, the, I don't know if there's physician assistants in Israel. I actually don't know that, but I'd love to hear about scope of work, scope of practice, I mean, and uh, interprofessional education. We are working on the development of a physician assistant program, not we, the university, but we, the, the State of Israel and the Ministry of Health. This is something that we need to move towards. If it's uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistants, you know, with the physician shortage and with the growing population, this is going to be, these are going to be some of the solutions, but we're not there uh, yet, but we we are definitely moving in that uh, in that uh, direction. Uh, e IPE interprofessional education, we'd like to be there. We're not there 
enough. We do have some joint training with the nursing school for our clinical skills course, and we even have nursing students or nurses uh, assessing and grading our students in, in OSCEs uh, for clinical skills. So you'll, you'll find a, a, a nursing student grading a medical student on their uh, basic skills, you know, taking a blood pressure or a pulse or, or, or a temperature or whatever, uh, which I think is great because, you know, um, we grew up in a, I grew up in a different world. You know, I'm the oldest person by far here, I think. And uh, it, it was all, you know, do as the doctor says. And, and we're moving away from that. Absolutely. And we believe in a multi a disciplinary, multi-professional environment of, uh, you know, mutual respect. And, and, and we definitely, we definitely need to do more there. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I, I also, you know, whenever I go get like my blood checked, I prefer to get it done from uh, the blood drawn from a phlebotomist or a nurse than, than a physician, just because the the cycles, the iterative process of that. So speaking of procedures, uh, something, uh, uh, Yair and I spoke about in Jerusalem, which I'd love to turn to you, Yair, to talk about here, is your focus on trying to get students trained to use handheld ultrasound um, as part of the diagnostic exams. And, you know, I know we talked about developing content around that potentially. We've had people on the podcast, including Eric Topol, um, who said the stethoscope is dead many years ago, uh, Dan Kraft, uh, Marius Lucas, and, and several others. Uh, actually, just last a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Oleg Turkot, who's at Hopkins, but he's Ukrainian uh, citizen as well. And he partnered with the ultrasound company and went to Ukraine multiple times. I think they may be there right now trying to build up healthcare capacity using, in part, handheld ultrasounds to do you know acute and chronic care. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about that passion of yours and where you see that space evolving? Okay, so thank you. Um, we are trying, we realize as, as a new faculty, we realize there is a lot of new technologies that are not well established, you know, in medical education in other universities around the world and in Israel. We saw that the point of care ultrasound may be one of the major tools that is a future physician is going to use. And we decided um, as, as, a, as a strategic uh, teaching method to um, try to, to teach the student to use the, the, the ultrasound um, from basically the first day of, of, of medical school, starting with anatomy courses that they're every uh you know section that they're seeing we are putting ultrasound we're moving them to physiology we're teaching them through um courses that teacher know better than me um uh, medical skills they're also using the ultrasound and then when they're coming when they're entering the clinical stages we're keeping making the students use the ultrasound it's, it's something that we're trying to build and you know do it throughout the, all the all the four years but and it, there is a lot of challenges. What what is the hazards? What can we achieve by by teaching this method? What is what is our limitations? So there's a lot of questions that we're trying to develop, but we think that's one of the most important tools. Yeah, definitely, and um, certainly that's something I'm hearing uh, from other other schools. But I think you guys are pretty far ahead as far as what I've seen in terms of that particular technology. I also wanted to turn it back to you, Peter, to talk about the issue of med school 
or burnout and moral injury, which I know is a is a huge area of discussion, especially in a in a post pandemic or because of COVID. Um, what's the situation like? Like, what do you, you you know? We can train more people in place. We can train more people to become clinicians. But if they're only lasting for five, ten, fifteen years, or even less, you know, it's a it's a leaky bucket. Um, what are some of the possible solutions you're seeing, and how are you addressing it at your school? And that, that's a that's a really big issue. And I've I've done some research on medical student burnout, and there, there is there is uh, a research on that. I mean, it started, of course, with with research on physician burnout. And we know that over 50% of American physicians are, are, are burnt out, depending, of course, on, on how you define that. Uh, and the, the numbers are the same with medical students. And it's amazing because it's from very early stages of their study. It's from the very first years. Because we ask a lot of them. And I, I think there may be generational issues here as well. I think that maybe people are more minded to work, you know, what's called work-life balance today than, than we were back in the day. Uh, we have to cater to that. Um, so yes, a great many medical students are, are feeling burnout uh, and, and we definitely need to address that. So the first stage was to actually map that out in Israel and it seems that we do have a problem uh, and this is yet to be published, uh, but I hope it will be. Uh, and the question is, what do you do about it? And there's literature on that as well. I mean, um, do you keep the same, uh, uh, you know, continual repetitive stress going all the time, but give people, you know, a mindfulness workshop or, a, a, you know, similar sort of personal interventions? That doesn't seem to be... Uh, doing the trick. So there seems to be a need for uh, institutional systemic uh, interventions here in order to uh, decrease the workload, perhaps, or, or, or make the uh, conditions more, uh, uh, you know, hospitable for, for physicians. You know, I, I grew up in an atmosphere, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ENT surgeon, as you said, um, and there was absolutely no, no legitimacy. You know, it wasn't acceptable to uh, admit weakness. You know, in the face of compli surgical complications, death of patients. These are very serious issues, uh, and there was nothing. Uh, and people are talking about this more and more today. So that 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 goes to um, you know physician burnout. We have to be there for our physicians, for our younger physicians, for our older physicians. We have to be able to talk about these difficulties and we have to make working conditions more acceptable, you know, carrying on the same way, but just having a couple of hours. Uh, mindfulness uh, workshop is not going, to, uh, not going to solve the problem. So I hope we're, I believe we're moving in that direction. We have a big issue here in the country now in Israel, uh, with uh, involving work hours. Uh, you know, we grew up in uh, 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 working, um, you know, 30, 32 or more hours, you know, c consistently. Um, and that's obviously unacceptable. And today's residents are saying, you know, no more. They're currently allowed to work 26 hours. This is their on call. They come in the morning and they work until the following morning and they 
uh, hand over the department to uh, to to other physicians and they go home. That's 26 hours. So there's a big political strike now by the residents saying, you know, this is unacceptable. We cannot work 26 hours. You know, pilots are not allowed to pilot a plane for 26 hours. Drivers are not allowed to drive a lorry for 26 hours. Why should we be allowed uh, uh, to operate on patients and make life and death decisions uh, after after a night without sleep? So this this is happening now, and it's a it's 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 a big it's a big issue. It's in the news, um, and and things are moving. I think in the right direction. So that will uh, also be part of the solution. It's a very complicated issue for sure. And, and uh, you know, it's good to hear things are trending in the right direction. But part of the complexity is um, when I was in med school at, at Hopkins, one of the uh, mentors we had is Peter Pernovost, who does a lot of patient safety research. Um, and, you know, one of the things his lab published was that the more times they're handoffs, you know, the same patient is being handed off multiple times because we have shorter shifts, the more potential chance there is for error because people don't fully understand the patient as when they admitted them or, or things like that. So versus like a, a handoff of a plane or a bus, um, you know, the, the plane or bus is not a human. They, they should, you know, develop, uh, react the same way in the same conditions. So there's less, you know, there's more standardization and, and that, but it's obviously complex because as you said, you know, you're delirious after 20, 24 hours, especially a high taxing environment. So it'd be interesting to see how it goes. And we'd love to see your research once it's published more for the research once it's published as well. Um, I'm aware of the time. I appreciate you guys are both taking this and it's pretty late in Israel right now. So I'm not going to take too much more of your time. My last two questions for you though, are the, my favorite question is, um, you know, we have an audience of 2.5 million healthcare, uh, students, uh, around the world. Uh, you have trained hundreds of them, uh, or more actually over the course of your career, probably thousands of them. Um, so I'm sure you get asked to give advice to these students pretty regularly. And so for our audience, uh, we'd love to get your advice about meeting their challenges of the COVID pandemic and beyond and uh, progressing their career. So uh, Yara, can we start with you? Okay, wow, it's a good question. I think that the best thing that, that I could give an advice is keep, you know, the curiosity all the time. Be curious about this profession because it's very, very uh, changing a lot and you have to be very curious and very updated all the time. That that aligns actually with, I was just talking to a uro urologist and surgeon named David Keynes, who was also on the podcast a couple of months back. And, you know, one of the things going back to your point, uh, Peter, about burnout was, you know, part of the reason he felt burned out was he was just kind of doing repetitive stuff every day every day. And so he started learning how to do uh, software and building up uh, websites for patient literacy and stuff like that. His curiosity, as Yair mentioned, kind of saved him. And he said, look, I fell in love with the profession again, because I started using that curiosity to solve other problems and, you know, didn't get as burned out with the one repetitive thing he was doing and the EHR documentation, things like that. So it's great advice. Um, Peter, how about you? What's your what's your advice to the to the audience? Yeah, much much the same. You know, I would say keep the keep the passion alive. Keep the passion alive. I mean, learn something new. Be curious. Uh, uh, be devoted. Uh, and, and I would um, I would add teaching as a cure for burnout. And you know, I would say be 
you know, not only be interested in your chosen profession and keep up to date and innovate and, and research, but I would say be passionate about teaching. Uh, and we don't have enough people who are passionate about teaching. And teaching is an excellent cure for physician burnout and for, you know, anybody else's burnout. Anybody involved in teaching uh, 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 can find great joy in that teaching. Uh, so we need people to be self-directed learners, but we also need excellent teachers and faculty development, you know, I know we're at the end of our time, but that's a big issue, you know, and we have great challenges all over the world in, in faculty development. We need to build up our teaching force. Uh, maybe Osmosis can, can do some work in that direction. I'd love some, to see some faculty de uh, development content on Osmosis because teaching is such an important skill for our students, for our residents, and for our practicing physicians. Uh, and everyone needs to know how to do it. And we're not born, you know, we don't become excellent teachers just by finishing medical school. There, there's, there's stuff to be learned there, you know. Yeah, despite the whole see one, do one, then teach one, uh, there needs to be a little bit more to, to get someone to be a, 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 a good teacher. Uh, certainly, Shiv, that that that's that's almost as obsolete <laughs> as the stethoscope, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I, I actually on that point, we do have some faculty development content I'd love to share with you, and and would love your advice in a separate conversation about what else you're seeing. Uh, but one plug I'll put in is we just launched this week, as we're recording this, the second Raise the Line Faculty Awards. Right, this is called the Raise the Line Podcast, uh, but uh, which we launched during the pandemic, beginning of the pandemic. The second time we're launching this Raise Line Faculty Awards to recognize some of the greatest teachers around the world. And we'd love to see, obviously, you two, the passion and curiosity and dedication to teaching medical education is clear. So I'm sure you both will get nominations, but we'd love to see people in Bar Ilan and in Israel uh, getting nominated as well. So that's a plug to our audience listening to this as well. Um, my last question, is there anything else that uh, I didn't ask you about that you want to get across to our audience about you, Barilan, Israel, medical education, or anything else that you'd like to get across? You know, I, 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 I'd like to say a couple of words about the use of osmosis, because we are talking about osmosis. Um, and I, I just like to say that an interesting challenge for us is to move away from just giving it to the students and saying, you know, use this, do with this, whatever you want to do, and actually making this part of the curriculum, if it's the preclinical curriculum or the clinical curriculum, and convincing teachers to use osmosis and similar tools as an integral part of their teaching. And we're not there yet. So this, you know, touches on faculty development, which actually is 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 connected to, to, to point of care ultrasound because it, it's a bottom up thing. You know, the whole thing is it's all student led because we have older faculty who have not grown up with ultrasound and they have to be convinced to use point of care ultrasound and they're being convinced by the students. And we have older teachers, older faculty who have known nothing else but traditional bedside teaching or frontal teaching by lectures. And we're saying, you know, here are these wonderful tools, use them. And it's a, it's an uphill battle, you know, it's a struggle. And we have to, uh, we have to work in that direction. And the students are our partners in that because the, uh, uh, um, 
you know, it comes from them. They want these tools. They want to use these tools. Uh, and the pressure from the students will eventually convince the faculty to integrate osmosis and other tools, perhaps, uh, into into their teaching. So it's 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 a very interesting time. Definitely. And we've definitely seen that sort of pull and there's a five or 10 percent of the faculty who, like you, are going to these conferences or are uh, listening to the webinars, are publishing research in medical education, who are adopting these tools and putting them into practice. But then there's a lot of other faculty who, as we know, they're focused on their research, they're focused on clinical duties, uh, they're focused on other things. And, and for good reason, that that's how they're paid or that's how they're incentivized. Um, and so finding ways to get them passionate about this as well and, and make it easy for them is definitely an area of focus of ours. Um, so thanks for that, uh, that insight. Uh, yeah, final word, any, anything we didn't ask about that you wanted to share? No, actually, Peter said it all. I think that Peter just put into the, the, the point straightforward. Awesome. Well, we appreciate, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with both of you and the partnership we have with you and your faculty and, and students at Bar-Ilan University. Um, and more, most importantly, the work that you do to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. A pleasure seeing you again. Likewise. And with that, I'm Shivilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.